All right, so I've got Tim for a couple more minutes, and I'm going to use those minutes wisely. We're going to talk about some of the like the, the touchstones in Americana when it comes to toys, some of the things that uh, are still around today. You know, it's pretty incredible. When, even when you go back to the early 1900s, you know, I did a whole episode on the teddy bear. You know, the teddy bear is still around. It's almost, you know, it's over 100 years old. Uh, crayons, Crayola crayons, uh, I think were invented in 1913. These are pretty old. Um, you know, it, well, you mentioned Monopoly. Um, I did a whole episode on Monopoly with a guy named Ken Corey who has one of the original, like, he has, I think he has the original Monopoly prototype, believe it or not. Uh, like the hand-drawn thing. Now, you mentioned that this was, um, I guess, lifted. Um, there's a, a little creative um, overlap. Was this – this is the, th- the the 1930s. Was this a period where people had a difficult time protecting their intellectual property? Was this a like a common thing? Well, of course, with the internet, it, it's much easier to trace things, right? So the answer – the short answer would be yeah. It, it, I think so. Um, but – the long story is that Parker Brothers did end up buying the patent from uh, Lizzie McGee, and they claim, and I think it's true that, or not, when I say they claim, uh, not Parker Brothers, the people, the historians claim that that when Parker Brothers got their patent on Monopoly, uh, I'm sorry, Charles Darrow got his patent on Monopoly. The patent office really should not have issued it because if they had looked back and found Lizzie McGee's patent for the landlord's game, they would have seen very, very similar. They both had railroads in the center of each side of the board and jail and go to jail. And there was Central Park instead of free parking and (laughs) uh, the the same number of spaces, chants utilities and i mean there there's no doubt that which one and that was you know 1904 uh, when that came out so uh she struck a bad deal so parker brothers you know went to her and said we'll pay you $500 and we will print a couple more of your games but but we want this game to be separate and she took that deal and they did you know produce a couple other games of hers and put her face on the box and they didn't sell and Monopoly's still around. Wow. You know, it's it's funny. Monopoly's one of these interesting things where, like, I happen to enjoy the game when played properly, uh, when played by the mm-hmm. rules. I enjoy the game. I cannot t- tell you a single person that I know, and I again, I told you I'm really into board games, that has played a game of Monopoly in the past two decades. Like, no one I know actually plays the game. Some people like the themed versions of them, and they can be very fun. I think that was the... You know, the themed versions of the game and also convincing the public they need a game no one plays, I think, are the two brilliant things um, <laughs> that the company has done. I don't even know who owns them anymore. Is it Hasbro who owns it now? Has, yes. Like, they, 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 that's amazing to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, they've convinced an entire population they need a game that they're never going to play. Well, you know, it's uh, – of course, there, there's a, a documentary film called Under the Boardwalk, which is all about Monopoly. And there is a national cha- – or I think it's an international championship. To, so there's mm-hmm. enough people that play it that they have a championship every year. Yeah. But I will say that, you know, it's a cultural phenomenon now. You know, so the, the Monopoly game that McDonald's does every couple summers is huge – uh, and the royalties that Hasbro gets from, you know, scratch off lottery right, tickets and yeah. 
machines in Vegas. And because it's a game associated with money, uh, there's a lot of, of gambling uh, licenses, yeah. like slot machines and such, and lottery tickets. Um, but I mean, you can buy, you know, I'm, I have a Monopoly rug in my office as we speak, you know, Monopoly shower curtains and T-shirts and so it's it's a brand that's that's transcended the actual board game, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting. A lot of people think that if Monopoly were to come out today for the first time, it it, it wouldn't sell because people would argue, oh, it's not that good of a game, or it takes too long to play, or well, yeah, I mean, I won't I won't bore you with my diatribe on Monopoly, but I think it's I think it's still a fun game to play when played properly. Um, you know, one quick story about Monopoly, and then we'll move on. Uh, I, I when I worked at McDonald's when I was a kid, like every kid does when they're a teenager, they you know you mentioned the Monopoly game. One of the guys that I worked with, because I mean, all right, I guess I can't get. I think the statute of limitations is probably off on any any criminal activities I'm about to tell you. But they used to have like the stickers on the hash brown on the hash brown bags. And so what we would do sometimes is we would take a bunch of these hash brown bags and either take them home or give them to our friends. Cause you could get like free hamburgers, free drink or whatever. There were a couple of free things in there, but you could also take, you know, and as you mentioned, match up everything. So boardwalk and park place were the grand prizes and everyone got park place, but there was only a couple boardwalks. There was a guy that I worked with who claimed to have found boardwalk and park place. Wow. And, but he couldn't get the money because he worked there. So you couldn't actually claim the prize. Now, I don't know if this story is true. It could be total BS. But I remember it was kind of a big deal uh, in, in at least at, at work that he found these things. I think he actually showed people. So people maybe win, maybe don't. But I think these stories exist. Thank you, Monopoly. Um, so as, as we move down the timeline, I want to talk about – so you mentioned in 1938, the Red Rider BB gun comes out. And I'm just going to briefly mention it because I think that it's uh, just because of – uh, Christmas story that that becomes like a very popular game, but in 1939, I think we should spend a little time on one of my favorite uh, inventions. I think of all time, my grandmother had one of these, and I loved it. The Viewmaster. Um, tell me about how this came to be. It's a very interesting story. Well, William Gruber was a piano tuner, and uh, he was into stereography. Which, if people have the old stereoscopes that were made of wood and you would place a card in there and it would slide back and forth until it was in focus uh, through these two little magnifying glasses. And your eyes would, your brain would take these images and, and combine them. And it looked like you were looking through a, or standing in a three-dimensional scene. So it was sort of a, 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 a trick that your brain sort of plays on you when you look, because we have two eyes, we have three-dimensional vision, you know, depth of focus. And William Gruber was a big fan of that, and he figured out a way to, to, to do it even better by taking these reels and putting them in a, a viewer. The, the pictures were smaller and the magnifying glasses were bigger, and he was able to give you a reel that had, I believe it was eight images uh, instead of just one. And it used light, so you you know v- took your Viewmaster and looked up to the light, and you kind of were, again immersed in this three-dimensional scene and when they first came out they, it really was a way to see the world for adults it was an adult product hmm. and i don't mean adult like right. dirty i mean adult like go to the louvre and you know you can stand on the streets of paris from the of your home in ohio right or you can 
see the Grand Canyon from the comfort of your chair. And a lot of the reels were, you know, uh, landmarks around the world. And then eventually it became a opened up to kids. And a lot of older adults listening will remember Viewmaster reels from the 60s and 70s were like the monkeys TV show and <laughs> Lost in Space, yeah. you know, the pop, Gilligan's Island, uh-huh. you know, pop, popular TV shows of the time. And today, Viewmaster is strictly a preschool toy. You know, there, there's no more reels of 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 the the redwoods in the north northwest of the U.S. It's all preschool. So that's something called age compression, where a 12 year old would wouldn't play with Viewmaster today because a 12 year old grows up much faster than a 12 year old did from the 1960s. So it's sort of sad that Viewmaster is strictly a, a preschool preschool toy today. That is, that is really interesting. Um, you know, it's funny because there was this really interesting kind of uh, synchronicity that happened um, when William Gruber was taking these pictures. He was doing the Oregon Caves first and met a guy named Harold Graves, who was a president of the Sawyer's yeah. photo, uh, Photographic Services. They struck a deal. Um, so had those two not been at the same place at the same time in the same field, we might not even have you, Master. No, you're right. And there's a lot of serendipitous meetings in the book. You know, the the the, the guys that founded Whammo, you know, they were the perfect partnership, you know, kind of yin and yang. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a lot of uh, relationships in here that are that are sort of fun to celebrate as well, because uh, no one in the industry does it alone. There's always stories of of other people they needed to to get their product out there. No, it's fair enough. And you know, as we move along the timeline here, we you kind of we t- touched on Silly Putty at the end of the last episode, but what I love about Silly Putty is that it was this weird polymer in kind of like this, you know, this is pre-space age, but we're, you know, it, it was pro- post World War II, 1950. The initial audience for this they were adults. Like that's another it's another toy that, you know, just like the Viewmaster that started out for adults but then kind of reverted to being a kid's toy. Right. And it's also a failure, right? So that, that which is really interesting. <laughs> I say you can't get further away from toys than war. Right. And, and that, that's where silly putty came from. It was a synthetic rubber that was meant to help us during the war effort to, you know, make boots and Jeep tires, and because rubber trees aren't indigenous to the U.S., we were sort of worried that, wow, if this war drags on for who knows how long, we need to come up with a synthetic rubber. And this was a failed attempt at doing that. But to your point, it was fun to play with. And there were some people at cocktail parties in the Northeast near the GE lab that that, uh, popularized this stuff. And and it, it was a cocktail party fad. People were playing with it and Oh wow! It can lift pictures off the newspaper. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. And uh, an entrepreneur again, uh, Peter Hodkin got a hold of it and said, "You know, I can, I think I can sell this thing." And then when you think about it again, he was the one that put it in an egg. Uh-huh. If, if you were to say, "I've got this toy idea," and you take this plastic egg and you crack it open, and this gooey stuff comes out, and you play with it, people would probably say, "Ah, oh, it's disgusting. I, that that'll never sell." you know, 50 million silly putty eggs later. And yeah, he was right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy. And it's also funny because, you know, as you mentioned, it's a war thing. In 1950, they had a ration silicone, which is one of the main products of it for the Korean War. And the company almost went bankrupt. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of stories about that, you know, and there was a time when Monopoly tokens were made of wood because the metal was a no-no and, and 
erector sets and uh, radio flyer wagons stopped making wagons and they started making uh, oil cans and stuff to support the war. So yeah, the war effort changed a lot of industry. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, that's like, whenever you talk about American history, it's always fun to see what happened during World War II because something happened, you know, no matter what it was, something took a, yeah. uh, some kind of like left turn. Um, so as we move down, you know, 1952, Mr. Potato Head. Now this is a great toy because... It was essentially, you know, I don't think I really realized that. It started out like literally taking a potato and sticking faces into it as a way to kind of get kids to have like a better relationship with vegetables. <laughs> so it's a very interesting origin, you know? Yeah, just a bunch of plastic parts that you stuck into vegetables. And, it, you know, it, it's – of course, we all know kids don't put their toys away. So I think enough potatoes sprouted under the couch. <laughs> Uh, eventually Hasbro had to make a plastic head for this thing, right? Yeah. But yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. The whole the whole idea that you shouldn't play with your food, uh, this goes against that. Well, and it took them, it was 1964, they came out with the plastic heads. It was like 12 years, it took them 12 years to kind of figure out they should include the potato. Um, yeah. But uh, but I like, the, I like the idea of the early days, like, not, you know, sticking it in a real potato. Uh, you know, yeah. we mentioned ant farms, and I wanted to kind of touch on this because I had one. Uh, I had one of the gel ones, a, a nutrient gel one, which isn't as fun. But I got to tell you, I know I'm going to come off like a bleeding heart liberal here. Uh, I'm a big animal lover. And even when it comes to ants, I, I love animals. I, well, I remember sending away for the ants, and they come to you in a vial. And so yep. you have to put them in the refrigerator for a little bit to kind of basically chill them out, literally. And then you take this tube, and you attach the tube – and the first 12 ants that come down that tube into your ant farm get to farm the ant, to get to be the ant farm. The rest of them, you just throw them out. And there's, you know, they're alive. They're these living insects inside this tube. Uh, that was horrifying to me. I mean, that's how much of an animal lover I am. I don't want to, like, commit – I mean, I still remember this today. I don't want to, like, commit ants to the grisly death of, like, fighting inside of this confined tube. Um, you know, that made, that turned me off to ant farms, but I got to imagine that I'm in the minority on that. I do remember hearing Milt Levine, the inventor say that, you know, it's, it's the cycle of life. You're, you're teaching that too. What? Oh, come on. That is, no, that is, that, I do not agree with that. Mr. <laughs> Uncle Milton cycle of life. That's not a natural way to die, Tim. That's a horrible way to die. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, part of the, having an ant farm is watering and feeding them. So, yeah. you know, the, uh, I, I personally didn't have one as a kid, Daniel. I can't I can't say. But, yes, I can't imagine the number of vials of ants that have been sold over the years. <laughs> In the bazillions. For, I mean, enough to put his three kids through school. I remember, I remember yeah, that. Right. Um, so another, another interesting one here as we move down, Uno. Uh, I, this is a game, not a toy, but I thought this was a really cool story because it essentially started out as like a made-up home game that became so popular. They used a deck of 52 cards, like a regular playing card deck that they, they had to write the rules on and everything. Uh, this is a really cool story and how this came to be. Yeah, Merle Robbins was a barber from Cincinnati and uh, really kind of a, a clever marketer. The story that I love with Uno is the fact that he would – he had a very small barbershop, one chair. And he was next to a bar. And what happened was uh, people would come to the barber shop, and if there was someone in the chair, you'd, you'd go over to the bar next door and you'd play this game that he invented. And there had an intercom system hooked to the bar. So then he would get on the intercom and say, Joe, you're up. You know, the chair is empty. Come get your haircut. 
so it was a great way to, to number one, market the game, and number two, you know, get people, uh, keep them, keep them getting their haircut and pumping them through the old system, right? So Merle Robbins was a pretty amazing marketer. But then him and his wife took this game. I guess they closed up the barber shop for a certain period of time in the summer, and they went on their vacation in the RV, and they they took Uno with them to RV parks all over America and played the game with people, and pretty soon it started taking off. And gee whiz, now it's uh, I think they're at 150 million copies sold. So pretty big success. It was. It's funny because in the early days they wanted to do a print run, but they couldn't afford it. So they had, I think, 10 people invest $1,000. So there were quite a few people that were investing in this early on. Um, Very interesting story there. Uh, I want to touch on 1983 Cabbage Patch Kids were really the first Christmas craze. I remember seeing that all over where parents were killing each other for a Cabbage Patch doll. Um, That's, that's, you know, that is the kind of the – the horrible turn that that toys always took when getting them for kids. It started out as a nice thing, but man, when it comes to Christmas time, it can be pretty brutal. Um, and then in 1993, this is the last one I'm going to mention: the Super Soaker. I love this invention. I had one. I this oh, yeah. was like a pivotal moment when it came to like water gun fights, uh, which I loved as a kid. This, I mean, and these things now are so incredibly engineered. But this, the first one was invented by a NASA engineer. I mean, these were this was really incredible. Yeah, Lonnie Johnson, he's just amazing. I, I had the privilege of interviewing him for the book too, and he was uh, had valves, different valve systems that he was working on, and he had one that he was testing in his bathroom, and he turned on the water, and it shot out. And the, the he he told the story of the shower curtain like blew back. <laughs> thought, wow, you know that's Perfect. that's a lot of pressure. Perfect. That kid that would be a great water toy. And he gave the world Super Soaker. And the prototype is in my book, which I find hilarious. It's a two liter Coke bottle like super glued to a bunch of PVC pipe. It's like <laughs> so cool to see the prototypes of some of these things. But before it, you know, it, they're so ubiquitous now. Super Soakers are everywhere, but. Got to remember, before that water gun, water pistols were twenty-nine cent plastic throwaway items. Like you'd buy a, you'd buy a twenty-nine cent water gun and you'd play with it for one day and then it would crack and start leaking and you'd throw it out and maybe you'd get another one. I mean, they were, they didn't even track the sales of them in the toy industry. They were they were so insignificant. And then when Super Soaker came out, it, it turned that category into, you know, a hundred million dollar category with water pistols that shoot a stream of water, you know, 20 feet. So <laughs> changed the game, I would say. Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely changed the game. An incredible jump in technology. Uh, so let's let's end it on your favorite toy. What's one that we haven't mentioned that was your favorite to do or you found that had the most interesting history? Wow. Well, of course, I, we mentioned Wiffle Ball. That was one of my favorites as a kid. And, and I did mention uh, Big Wheel as well. Um, so those two were, were pretty, pretty, pretty big for me as a kid. I was an outdoor kid. So Frisbee. I mean, when I think about the success of Frisbee there and I mentioned this in the book. You know, Barbie is a is a huge, huge hit, and and so is Monopoly. But but Frisbee, another species, plays with Frisbee. So there are millions of dogs that enjoy playing Frisbee with their owners. So when you think about 
when I'm asked what's the most popular toy ever, I, I, I got to go with the Frisbee for that reason. That's interesting. You know, and they've got an inter- interesting history, too, because it started with Yale students tossing around a pie tin from the Frisbee Pie Company. Um, Whammo Toys, you wrote the book on that, started making them. Yep. I remember, you know, I remember in high school learning Ultimate Frisbee. And there, I, I, knew how, I still know how to throw a Frisbee four different ways. And I'm still pretty accurate. I got to tell you, I'm st- I still I still got it, Tim. You know, I don't know if I'm professional level, but uh, with a couple months of training, I could probably get right back in there. But this was huge in college. Oh, ultimate is still huge, and there's disc golf, mm-hmm. which is you know, speak golf, which there's courses all over the place, and you know, it's in the '80s they had the the frisbee championships in Pasadena, and fifty thousand people went. I mean, it was huge, and you're talking a couple. I think it's. 200 or 300 million, they estimate, frisbees have been sold. And, and as I say, uh, even different species playing it. So right. amazing toy. Yeah, and I've been to that that course, the frisbee golf course um, in or disc golf, whatever people call it, in Pasadena. It's really nice. It's right just south of JPL. Um, a lot of JPL guys go there and play. It's a pretty nice course. I mean, it's not like a country club. It's not like regular golf, but it's it's pretty nice and very challenging. Yeah, no, that's cool. Incredible stuff. Uh, Tim, I honestly can't thank you enough for this extra time. Oh, Danny, it was great. I appreciate the chance to come on and uh, talk toys. It's fun. Absolutely. Thank you very much.